Vince, thanks for jumping on. Good to see you. This will be a totally different episode. So about Thank a week you, ago, man. I was at my parents' house, and um, they've been super supportive of the podcast, especially in the last three, four months. But um, they're like, Adam, like we, we love the things you're doing, but we're not sure we totally get it. And I said, hey, let me walk you through a quick discussion with Vince, and he's going to be jumping in. I think this will be the moment when you, mom, dad, Larissa, Roman, when you, when you will understand it. So Vince, um, you and I sp spoke, I think, 15 minutes. I was super short. I was like, hey, this is what we're doing, future of people initiatives. What do you think is the you know, role of marketers to bridge customer experience and employee experience? And you were like, Psh, got it. So I think mom and dad, the first things to do is to understand Vince's background. It's a bit unusual. Small agency to a Fortune 200. Vince, can you just chat a little bit about your unique background? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Thank you. you know, and uh, what a what a special episode. I'm honored to be a part of this one. Um, you know, I, I do have a, a a bit of a unique background. I. In, in even going back as far as back to college, I studied both finance and marketing. Passion was always in marketing, but I really, really understood and appreciated the power of finance, even from just a personal budgeting perspective. It was always so important to me. And I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, fast forward and here we are. And the combination of marketing and finance is really what marketing is today, especially growth or performance marketing. So, um, Initially got out of school. I went into a very small, a very small startup, and it was small enough to where we actually didn't even have an office. We were working out of Panera, and it was, it was amazing. I mean, I, I got to sit a, directly across the desk from a former VP of a Fortune 200 and learn everything directly from her. So, very blessed for that experience. The the challenge with those startups is that you only have a number of clients, a very mm. small number of clients, and Sometimes totally. when you lose a couple, you know, you have to make some difficult decisions. And that was me. Yeah. So I moved on to a Fortune 200 and I decided I really wanted to flex that finance side. So I did a lot of spreadsheets. I definitely did a lot of analysis and I, I developed a lot of hard skills and it was great. The reason I ended up leaving is because I, I, I felt that um, I wanted to split the difference between marketing and finance. And I wanted to find something a bit smaller. This was a huge company. And I remember I was actually walking through what I call the, uh, the cubicle farm. And it was just a sea of cubicles, right, as far as you can see. And as I'm walking through it, I see this little kind of sign hung up in somebody's cubicle. And it, it said, thank you for your 15 years of service. You know, and, and it was a moment for me that I remember very vividly that I, I looked back and I looked at this person and I thought they deserve so much more. They deserve so much more recognition than a little cheap frame hung up in, in their cubicle. And... I thought to myself, this isn't for me. Mm -hmm. And I had tasted this small little startup working out of Panera and this Fortune 200, marketing at one, finance at the other. And I said, let's, let's try it something different. Let's find the Goldilocks here right in the middle. Well, I joined a gutter guard company. And that year, we did $35 million in sales. And that's awesome. a few good things happened. One, I met my wife there, which, I mean, hey, that's, that's first and foremost the more, most important thing. But, you know, on, on the professional side, the, the business grew from $35 million to... In how many years? $1.5, billion. <laughs> Eight. And in that time, my career obviously mm -hmm. um, 
it was certainly a right place, right time situation for me. And I think that as humans, we always look at right place, right time only when something good happens. We don't recognize the right place, right times when nothing mm -hmm. happens, right? Mm -hmm. And what it takes is obviously the right action at the right place in the right time. So I was very blessed to be put in a situation where I had great mentorship and, and was able to grow to the point where I was the, uh, the leader of the marketing mm. team. We had around 70 different marketing, creative analysts, developers, you name it. And when we left, we were, I mean, managing $400 million mm -hmm. in annual marketing revenue. Uh, I'm sorry, spend. Um, so it was it was a great great opportunity for me and and my current role. I'm the CMO of American Residential Services, uh, the nation's leading HVAC plumbing uh, company, and uh, I have the honor of working alongside 7,000 different uh, employees that have their boots on the ground every day and making an impact and keeping the the, the country com the country comfortable. So. That's my story, a bit unique. Yeah, totally, thank and, and for thanks for sharing that. And I'm going to hone in. That, that experience early on at Panera, right, you brought it up a couple of times, right? Those ex once you're exposed to that creative, that entrepreneurial, that growth hacker, limited resources, need to get too much done mindset, I think it stays with you forever. And, and maybe that's partially contributing to such tremendous growth of your career. Um, you know, Vince, I, you know, when you and I spoke and, and I talked about the employee experience connection to the customer experience, and now you mentioned that sign, you know, well, thank you for your 15 years service. It resonated for you. You were like, whoa, like totally, I'm right there with you. But I think me, my parents, especially, I think when I, when I ask them, what is marketing? I think their definition of marketing is maybe outdated. How do you think about you as the CEO, like what, what is the role of marketing in our society today? I think the role of marketing is to influence. I think that that is the simplest definition. People have needs, people buy things, people buy things they don't need, people don't buy things they do need. And it all comes down to influence or capturing or creating need. And it can be in any different type of industry or any product. It can be personal branding. How do you market yourself? How do you carry yourself? It's, it's about what you say about yourself and what Mom others and Dad, say about you. It's broader That's than what, what we discussed uh, last week. It isn't just promotion or salesmanship. There's much more involved here. And um, the context of the podcast, we kind of started with what is the future of people initiatives, and we've spoken to a lot of folks in employee experience, HR, change management, talent, you and I briefly discussed. Then about four months ago was David and, and Beverly, David at Spirit Airlines, Beverly at PayPal. They said, hey, consumerization, employee experience, or, or all of HR products. And I was like, no, consumerization, I don't get it. Then I looked up the definition, reorientation around them, not the organization, and uh, started hearing more and more about what is the relationship between CX and EX. And um, over the last two weeks, I've now met a number of CMOs that run internal agencies or are advising internal, internally focused agencies, groups dedicated to the employee experience. And Vince, you said to me, Adam, what, where do we focus? What's the goal of our of the discussion for this episode? And I said, Vince, how would you solve retention? 
Like if you had unlimited resources that of course proved the ROI, right? We gotta have the ROI. How would you approach approach it? So Vince, if you were to solve retention, what would be what would be the process? What's what's the mindset that you would take on? What are the steps that you would follow? Well, as a marketer, I think that the you're describing an audience, right? And we know that in marketing, people buy things for different reasons. Different things make people happy. Some things that make people happy make others angry. It, 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 everybody has kind of their own, um, not necessarily needs. The needs may be similar, but the, the emotion behind those, those needs and fulfillment is, is different amongst people. Now, it's not to say that every single person has a unique point of view, but you can start to cluster these different points mm -hmm. of view into what we in marketing call personas, right? So I think that one of the things that could potentially be holding back retention is a one-size-fits-all approach. Now, people are typically motivated at work by one of three things. Sometimes, oftentimes, it's, it's money. Sometimes it is um, status or recognition, and sometimes it is time. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important, and it could be a multitude of other things as well, but just like it's important in marketing to understand what it is that your consumer, what is their specific pain point? What is it that makes them resonate? What is it that makes them ultimately act? You have to kind of understand that same thing and create these clusters of your different employees mm -hmm. and really understand that at the end of the day, these are, these are people, right? They're all different. So I think that the, the core theme here is that having a one-size-fits-all approach in marketing is a very dated um, thought, right? It kind of is the marketing of the, uh, the Mad Men era, right? where it was very subjective in a way and, and very, um, again, one size fits all. Now I think that the people side of this for retention, I think it's all about identifying which one of those three, four, five things is it that that specific individual really, really is looking for. And then how do you create a plan to speak to that, a custom plan or in marketing, we call it a tailored journey for that individual. I think that is the, the and when you talk about personas, we, um, and that's a common term in, in the world of customer experience, then that's a step one. How, 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 what kind of data would you be curious about in terms of this new audience? And I love this concept of adding an audience or, slipping, or, or switching to another audience. What kind of data would be helpful? Well, I think the, the beauty in, in marketing is, and this is kind of a, an interesting answer, but I don't know. And I'll tell you why I don't know. I think that if I told you that I, I knew the three, four, five things that were important to people, I'd be starting with a, an idea that I'm going to find the answer to the data that I'm forcing. So what I would do if, if we were to think about how we would design this in a similar way that a marketer would, we would try to collect as much data as we possibly can on our audience, right? And we would probably do that through uh, qualitative and quantitative research, whether that may be um, surveys, it could be semi-anonymous, but we would need to understand what is it about these people, even if it's, it's, if it's free-form text input, tell me the things that matter the most to you. 
Let's give them all the ability in the world. Now let's take that as our first qualitative test. Then let's start to bucket those into different areas, like I did. Maybe it's uh, freedom for time, uh, uh, compensation, and finally, um, status or recognition. Then what we could do is we could start to bump that up against the audience, right? And we would say that this, and it could be anonymized, but this person or this, um, you know, non-identified uh, non person, but this type of person enjoys X, Y, and Z. And what we would then do is we would uh, likely bump that data up against third-party data like Experian or Epsilon or something from a hmm. third-party data aggregator and say, help us find more people like this. And then that essentially becomes your pool. And at the same time, you could take a number of other mm -hmm. internal first-party data you have. Maybe it's performance reviews. Maybe it's um, could be anything. But I think the, the whole premise here is you have to start with really understanding your existing customer or your existing audience, being these employees, and then try to identify what elements make them happy. And then finally, when you bring in somebody new, figure out which one of those mosaics or clusters that they fall into. And that should likely help you understand. Maybe it's a combination of age, uh, could be <laughs> whether they're left-handed or not. You'd be surprised mm -hmm. at how much uh, you know, amazing data is out there within these Experian databases. Um, do they own or rent their home? Um, do they have a dog? It, you know, you'll, you'll start to find out things about people in a traditional marketing uh, a tactic and, and, and be able to say with a certain mm -hmm. level of confidence, we believe that they fit into this mold and we are going to create a plan totally. for them that centers around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I totally, and I love how you went into onboarding as well. Reaction. And, and I actually think that that's a great one to double click, but before we do tell me if you, if you agree with the simplified approach that this function of the internally focused on you know marketing and the employee experience would have two dots and there's a lot in between the first dot we've already talked about which is understanding them personas it's about data right data bringing data together where it's their learning and development hr microsoft you know teams collaboration you know task whatever all of the data whatever is relevant and then subject to responsible use and governance right all the way on the other side, the more I think about it, the more it's a touch point. It's a micro you know, activity, it's a nudge, it's something super light. Would, would you agree? I mean, there's a lot in between, but do you see that differently at the highest level? I do, you know, and it, I don't know that that's something I've thought about in the past. Specifically, I mean, let's, let's face it, um, data is a sensitive topic in today's world, right? Um, a lot of people may listen to this and go, oh my gosh, Experian knows that much about me. And now my employer is going to as well. So I think that there is certainly a level of responsibility mm -hmm. that and, and transparency that organizations would owe to their, or their employees and show, look, the reason we're doing this is to better serve you, right? It's to make sure that we are um, um, creating a tailored plan for you and we're going to show that plan to you. It's, it's very much like a Myers-Briggs test or an Enneagram test. Um, but the difference, I think, is a lot of times when you have Myers-Briggs or Enneagram mm. tests, so what? You get to a certain point, and then what? You can read it. You can understand it. What do you do with that? So I don't know that that directly answers your question, Adam, but I, I do definitely agree that on the one side, the data 
does have pros and cons as it, as yeah, it does co completely, in any completely agreed and it comes uh, up all the time the in almost every conversation when we touch the employee data it's, everyone recognizes the sensitivities and the responsibility and the governance that needs to be put in place and, and you mentioned transparency um, so l let's take it from from this perspective if we want to improve turnover and we look at the employee journey, employee experience, the moments that matter, they're probably infinite, right? That we can get lost in the complexity, but at the highest level, it probably starts with onboarding, or maybe it starts with recruiting, really your first touch point. You, you had a conversation with a recruiter, now what happens thereafter? With a you know, marketing mindset, approaching that, and personas, as you mentioned, What's possible there? How would that information, and I know this, a lot of this for you, maybe the first time being asked the question, because really we, we're in uncharted territories, emerging market. How would you now approach that and say, hey, I understand the persona there in this phase of the experience. What would you do with that information? Well, I, I think that there is a, data-driven approach, and I think that when designing this, you have to be very transparent, as we had mentioned, and, and very much encourage your pool to be incredibly vulnerable and honest and open in who they are. Um, I often go into this idea that people put on a work cape every day, and they try to be somebody that they're not, and it's almost like a completely different persona that they put on, and they say, this is the work version of myself, and I've always been very much of the idea that you should be the true unfiltered version of yourself each day. So I would say that a lot of this banks on people being honest from the very beginning, in a way. Like if, you're, if your original data is going to be qualitative data or even some elements of quantitative data based on the qualitative data you already have, it starts there. So you need to obviously start with, with um, you know, high quality, high confidence data at the beginning. As far as the steps I think we'd take from there, once you have that, we would we would absolutely be able to say, let's then break that. If you have your, your third-party data, you would then be able to break that into your deciles internally and bump that up against performance as we had, we had spoken about. And then from there, you can start to identify the high performers. It kind of takes you back to the nine box, right? Like a lot of this is almost like digitizing the nine box. If we think about the high performer, you know, high achiever, um, and, and you, you know, you quite literally think about that box that, that we've used for so many years, this is almost the mathematical way of, of putting people into one of those boxes and understanding where their performance fits versus the persona that they're in, and then trying to determine a way to say, okay, in order for them to get into that next box, how do we elevate them? We know that the data says that here are the, the key things that typically people in this top right box, which we strive for everybody to be in, those are the key pieces that or the key attributes around those people. So um, hmm. what I, I guess I would ask, the I guess I don't want to turn the question right back around, but I'm curious. No, learning from brilliance. And, and I'm agreeing with you. The, the way that I, this is, you know, almost unhinged from reality. This is like dreaming is to say, okay, what are the employee experience moments that matter? Let's identify all of them. And then let's make sure that we meet them where they are for all of those touch points as we would with a customer journey. That's what happens with customers. You see an ad, you didn't do anything, one path. You did, you clicked, but then you abandoned shopping cart. You did, you purchased the item. Now did you, you know, were you happy? Were you not happy with the first? How do you be, what's the lifetime value? All of these same questions would be applied to every single aspect of the employee experience. It's a gigantic task. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, I think the challenge there is that we in in the digital world and even in the uh, any any data driven world, we have this mass amount of first party data. It's significant. So you can analyze the first party data, and, and again, you could bump it up against thir- first uh, third party data. I think the challenge here is that the base of that first party data that you're describing, how do we get that right? What is what is step one in this process? Because the abandoned cart, that is a transactional thing that we've already identified as important because common sense tells you if somebody was ready to buy something and they did, they bail at the last minute, something happened there. So what are those microtransactions, as we call them in marketing, that matter and that are visible to us as, as uh, uh, you know, leadership and, 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 and business owners and managers, right? What are the signs of, of somebody who's ready to leave? What are the signs of frustration? What are the signs of, of happiness, right? So it really, I mean, this whole thing hinges on the employees sharing those things in order for us to get that data and then be able to use that data to their advantage and say, okay, great, now we know we're going to find ways to do that more. And we're going to find other people that fit that mold and we're going to continuously... Um, it's actually kind of quite exciting that over the last six to nine months, the technology breakthroughs, especially in the Microsoft Power BI stack, have made it more possible for unification of data, mm-hmm. uh, which is really step one that you're talking about. And, and you're 100%, there may be some based on the c- company already having the data and some that is triggered by something that's, that's taking place by the uh, employee or the associate. But step one is unification data. And in the world of customers, that's a CDP, customer data platforms that bring it all together. So, you know, first step here would be an EDP, employee data platform. And I don't want to get into a brazen self-promotion, but perhaps uh, you and I briefly spoke about a technology company that delivers smart nudges. We've had a few breakthroughs, It's not, but it's Microsoft. There's, there are partnerships with other organizations that allow this to happen. But... I think it's going to happen. I don't think there's a, there's a choice. Again, I, we keep going back to responsibly, and it has to be done in a way that is supporting the individual. Now, now the, the next question, question, let's say we've done it. The unification took place of the data that is relevant, and it's providing great insights to lead to personas, to segmentation, and perhaps it's not even drilled down at individual level. Perhaps it's done at, at segments. What kind of skill set would be required to act on it? What does a minimum viable internal marketing focused agency would need to exist? Or maybe that's an employee experience agency. Inter- I use the word agency to make it cooler. I don't think a department just sounds, you know, just sounds like who's going to want to, like you're looking for really creative people that want to come in and disrupt in the way the experiences are taking place. Help me think about what would that look like? <laughs> Well, that yeah, was the marketer was. in you that just came out calling it an agency. And I, yeah. And I think that it's, I mean, I think that this is, it, it's another audience that, that really, um, you know, you, you've got different audiences that you need to appeal to. You think about corporate messaging, you think about consumer driven messaging, you, you know, you've, you've got a, a new audience to think about. And, and the truth is, is that that audience has always been there. This isn't a new audience, right? This is just maybe the last audience oh, that's that being was adopted into this way of thinking and marketing. So I, I, I do believe that it is very much a traditional marketing 
function of a analyst, potentially a creative. And when I say creative, I don't necessarily mean a you know, design-focused creative. I more so mean a disruptive thinker, somebody who can ask the questions and somebody who can kind of connect the dots. And then your, your, your analyst would be more so on the, the technical side to be able to make that happen. And I think that with a very lean team, you push this out in a beta test, um, like any marketer would, right? You don't invest, you know, you don't hire a department of 30 people to do this. You, you start very slow. And like any marketer would, you would scale it up with the success. And I believe that this is um, something that can absolutely drive the uh, ability to keep employees engaged and happy and longer in their roles and also give them that, I don't want to call it a carrot because that could have a negative connotation, but let's face it, everybody is always looking for that next level. And if that's not in front of you and you can't see it, it, it becomes difficult. So I think this is a lot about figuring out, I don't know, is it the carrot? Is it uh, like, what is it mm -hmm. that they want to do? How do you influence them, them to your point go, in the beginning of the conversation? That's what marketer does. So you described a small team that would be, uh, call it a pilot, like in the world of marketing, just, you know, try it and, and see where it goes. Now, who, who would be a better person for them to report to? So there are two schools of thought that I'm, that I'm finding. First are CMOs saying this internal team is best uh, report to us with a dotted line to the people function, the HR function. And then there's the other school of thought saying, no, 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 this is squarely in the world and budgets and control of, of each, you know, people uh, function or HR. I say that because some organizations are moving away entirely by talking about employee experience within the HR function. Um, which, what do you think is the right answer? You know, it's funny. I'd, I'd probably venture to guess yeah. that the HR folks are saying it should be an HR and the marketing but, but, folks are saying But you, you know, not all. We've so actually wonder, had CMOs you know, that, push back an, and say kind of majority, yes, but few CMOs said we are no. focused on the top line, on growth. Adding this to our plate, there, this is going to take away from our, you know, North Star. Sorry, please continue. Yeah, I, I believe it, it is a function of HR. Now, at the same time, I think that organizational charts in the traditional sense are almost dying in a way where they're carved in stone and, you know, they're so just like this. It seems like the organizational charts of the future, and I hate even calling them that, but they're matrix organizational charts. You, we've seen it happen with the BI function. You know, it wasn't that long ago that, uh, you know, you, before business intelligence teams were really formalized. It was like every department had a, an analyst in it. And at one point, we kind of looked around and said, wait a minute, why don't we consolidate this? And now it oftentimes rolls up to the finance team. However, uh, you have embedded uh, analysts or FP&A experts within each functional area. So I, I would probably picture it something like that. But I, I, I also have this um, you know, un I, I, relatively uncommon view on, on organizational charts and whatnot in that a lot of times, um, it is truly just something, you know, you put on paper and it's more about a way of working. How do we work together? How do we, how do we run a process? How do we determine, you know, who, who's, who to go to for what? Uh, organizational charts certainly serve a purpose, but whether it rolls up on paper to the HR leader or the marketing leader, um, that person is going to 
really need to partner heavily with both of those leaders because there are certainly uh, marketing elements to this, but there are absolutely HR elements to this as well. So if I had to pick one, I think it'd go in the HR lane um, with a dotted line up to marketing. Um, but I, I don't know that I would. It uh, could depend on the organizational structure, the industry. One way or the other. Yeah, I mean, that, yes. Yeah, very much. I mean, depending on the size of your industry, depending on the number of people you have, depending on the skill set of your marketing leader versus the skill set of your HR leader, I think it really is a nuanced decision that you need to be um, careful making and and, um, and also know that it's uh, it's flexible and, and it's like that for a point in time, but you never yeah. know. And, and I was also evolved, thinking of just the dynamics of that specific timing. industry CX and the dynamics of that industry's EX. You know, for example, if you're in a hospitality and, and you are one of our previous guests was um, used to work with Ritz Carlton, helped create the Leadership Institute. And uh, in that industry, like it's everything. Like every touch point is so critical. So now the CMO is deeply involved in the employee experience because there are very clear connections to the customer experience. Um, so we've got, we've unified the data. Okay, we have a team to run the beta. There's a couple team members. We can throw them, throw them, direct them. I wasn't, direct them in one of the following places. We could say, let's go after culture. We have culture-related activations, purpose, values, internal communications. Hey, could you go and evolve our internal communications to be GQ-like publications? Or when we celebrate great work by our team members, uh, not my idea. Hey, Ben, a shout-out to you and Jennifer and Mark. You all have done that. Um, do we go after onboarding or perhaps learning and development? Do we run betas to say, hey, we are absolutely committed to accelerating upscalings as a result of that? Hey, now let's measure enrollment. Like we're selling an event at this point. We're selling a, 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 you know, an experience. Let's see how well we could do. Do you have a sense for where would you begin to run these, this, these pilots or maybe across the board? Yeah, absolutely. I, you're describing a marketing funnel. You quite literally are. Um, if you're having trouble getting prospects, AKA even getting interviews, that's a certain approach you're gonna take. If you're having trouble going from interview to employee, something needs to happen between those two steps, right? If you're having an issue between employee and retention, you need to focus there. So I think that it really depends on each individual um, company or organization's needs. What are you struggling with, right? When we think about marketing, you drive people to a website. The percentage, those are prospects, the percentage of which those people uh, convert. If we, if, we, if we go back a step, you take them to an ad. The percentage of the uh, you know, impressions that become a click, that's your click-through rate. And if that's not high enough, you know that there's something wrong with your ad. Let's go down the funnel. You drive them to a landing page. Do they convert? That's your conversion rate. If they don't convert, you may know you have something wrong with your landing page. You can continue down this funnel all the way through the unique pieces of your organization, whether it's, is it phone call based or text message based? Are you getting the leads on the website but people aren't answering the phone? Well, then you have an issue with potentially your phone or your scripting. Are you closing them? So, you know, you could go all the way through these different business funnels, but I think that depending on your specific challenges, I would say, let's pick one. Let's say it's retention. I think you 
uh, you know, the organization there in, would probably start with their existing employee pool and actually analyze through exit surveys, really understand why people are leaving. Then try to understand the personas of the people that are leaving. And that could actually help you identify people who are prone to leave because they match the same profile of you know, 50 other people who left recently. And then that, as a leader, would give you the opportunity to make sure that you're not caught off guard and you know, you're not the dreaded, oh my gosh, I thought everything was fine. I never even thought to check in with them. So while technology is going to do a lot, like it does in marketing, it will never do it all. So I would say that um, it's a nuanced decision based on a number of things. And I think that's where your analyst comes in. You start to put a, a dollar amount, or I guess you would in marketing, or you'd put a, a, some type of KPI behind this and say, hey, there's all these different points in the funnel depending on which one we fix. I love that, one the clarity and the simplicity of that. It, it is, you know, about three, four months ago as we started down this path, because I spent, you know, 10 years ago, I, I co-founded an agency, Mably, out of Chicago. And about five years ago, Prohabits, a technology company, spun out and I focused on employee experience and I've been in that world. And now my head is, is kind of recalibrating as these two are coming together into one. Um, and, and thinking about it as a funnel, I think is perfect. And uh, picking a number of different funnels and testing them and then looking at every level of, hey, did we, did we move the KPI? Did, what did this mean? Um, you know, the... Yeah, Adam, I mean, you have, if you were to picture quite literally, um, let's, let's pick 10. Let's say you have 10 different employee personas and you had 10 funnels, you would see the conversion rate at each one of those points in the funnel. And then you would even identify that this type of employee tends to fall off at this part in the funnel. And then for that specific type, it would tell you exactly, you know, what we were discussing. So it is, it isn't a singular funnel, of course, right? It's, it's multidimensional and it's, uh, it's, it's the exact marketing principles, the best marketing companies in the world use. And it's, it's, um, it's exciting to think about this because it's so new and it's almost like the pieces of the puzzle have been we all are together. And, and it's and interesting you're, you're that your words were so last audience. Cool. I, I almost think like that's a title of a book, uh, last audience. Um, there is one, one other many areas that I'm curious about, and, and I'd like your opinion on this one. And this is a challenge that I see that's about to take place as, as, as these pilots launching organizations, they're going to bring in an analyst and the creative and the, you know, the small team to the run pilots. And, uh, they're going to say, well, we need to simplify our messages everywhere. We need to make it more visually appealing, funnier, more real. We need to take a lot of our, you know, humanless language out. We need to connect to them at a level that they see acceptable in the world of as customers. And uh, I think there's going to be friction between this team and what it takes to create that human connection via message and what the organizations are used to to play it safe. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, I, I think that is a little bit uh, just marketing in, in general. And I think that it is a little bit opposite of what we're describing, right? If the individuals that you're describing come in with preconceived notions that we need to make it cheeky and funny and we need to change our tone to this this and this it's like well what, what are you basing that on right unless if the data tells us that maybe like let's play devil's advocate maybe employees mm. don't want 
the employer to be funny. I think that's a core assumption that if the creative team or the creative leader or the analyst came in and made, that would be like, well, wait a minute, we're not here to make assumptions. We're here to use the data. So now let's say a study came out after we did it all. And that's what the people had to say. Yeah, we want a, uh, you know, a certain type of, of tone or voice from our, um, you know, from our, our organization, then yes. Um, and it's hard to dispute data. So I think if, if that's the path, if the individuals that you're describing have that data on their side, it goes from being your opinion versus mine to this is the collection of the data and this is, is what it says, right? So um, I do absolutely agree with you in that there would be friction if it was based on anything except for hard data. And if it's, if it's on hard data- I'm with you, I'm with you. And that's the data-driven marketing approach that's, that's deeply rooted. It feels like it's deeply rooted in, in your career. Um, Yeah, yeah, it always has been, you know, and, and, and it goes back to the juggling and the marketing and the finance, right? It's, it's, um, it's, it's almost like playing the kind of, I don't want to say middleman a little bit, but, you know, you've got your, your whether you're talking to the CFO or, or your, your creative director, being able to speak both languages and be a marketer, but also be somebody who's heavy into testing and understanding, you know, the financial impacts that, that uh, you know, a certain move may have. Uh, may have it's that's that's obviously incredibly important so i've always been very much um lead with data check it with your gut versus lead with your gut and check it with data because you'll always be able to find the data that you want to find if you're leading with your gut the data can tell any story that you want it to if you have the this this perception that you want to be true so I think that's one of the biggest dangers in, in analysis and analytics and BI in general is you have to be very, very, very um, okay with being wrong or even just not having an opinion on something until you see the facts. I think that's um, a little bit counterintuitive. And totally. And, and that, I feel like, Vince, you, you and I could go on for hours. I'm just, uh, I looked at the time. I was like, wait, how much time went by? Mom and dad, I hope that you understand that brilliant marketing minds are going to bring this type of a marketing shift, marketing perspective, and entirely, as Vince said, the last audience. They're going to bring it to that audience, and the results are going to be transformational. Because if you took out the modern way of marketing, modern approaches from the way organizations, brands communicate in the marketplace, you'll be in the 20s, 15 years ago. I think, Vince, you said it well. You said like at that time, marketers you know, were in an entirely different position. Maybe it was all about uh, madman, billboards, right? Yeah, uh, your opinion versus mine to some extent. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing now in, in marketing that uh, opinions are encouraged. That's how you get ideas. And ideas, there's truly no no bad idea. So I always I always push the team say, come on, let's get ideas out there. Let's let's work. everybody's got a marketer in themselves somewhere. Everybody can have an idea. So always pushing that culture. But at the same time, there's data now. There's data now that we can use, and it's getting stronger and bigger and faster and more agile. And um, again, I, I like to think about this as a puzzle. The pieces are sitting there, Adam. You've got uh, a pretty amazing idea, and um, appreciate it, Vince. You know, well, the the last question would be for the audience listening. They're innovators. They're either on the customer experience side or they're on the employee experience side, and they're you know thinking about running the pilots. 
that, that you and I just just discussed that you they shaped have what, what what advice would you give them and I think you know data driven I think that that seems to resonate across our conversation what other advice would you give them before they kind of embark on this journey or to accelerate embarking on the journey you know I, I would say you know my personal approach is always to be very much design the um, design the process and design the project in a way that you know is the right amount of effort to put into that process or project. So, um, a lot of times in marketing, I think we tend to spend countless hours trying to design the perfect test and making sure everything is absolutely perfect. You're never going to think of everything. There are going to be things that come up. You're going to make mistakes. So I, I would say that, you know, don't let complacency get in the way. Um, go out and, and try it. And we're talking about an agile small test and, and think about potentially the, um, uh, what, like, think of, let's think about worst case scenario, right? Like, let's say this fails. Well, it was a small test anyway. We protected ourselves by not rolling it out against the entire employee pool. So I would say, look, start small. Uh, start with maybe some people that um, you trust. Definitely partner with your HR leader and, and say, look, I want to partner with you on this. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, you and I could work very well together. Um, here's, here's what I propose. Be a great partner. Um, they obviously know a ton about this. So I would say be a great partner. Design the test in a very agile way and start with a small pool. And, uh, and and go from there, just like any other marketing tactic. Start small, find some small wins, scale it up over time, and and start with a, a few employees that uh, perhaps you have, I don't want to say personal relationships with, but ones that you know are going to really give you that vulnerability start and the data that you need yes. in order to start modeling. Great, great advice. Appreciate you very much. Start you know, small. hope to continue the journey and continue to stay in contact. Just uh, thank you on behalf of the audience and uh, of my my parents for walking them through it. It's been an honor. It's been an honor. And uh, it, it was really special being on this episode, uh, being dedicated Thank you. to your parents, Adam. Thank you.